Good morning. How is everybody doing this morning? I am in a mask, not because I'm feeling ill. I may stay in the mask, depending on if I can get this off. Uh, as some of you guys know I'm in a coaching network, and I get to see my coach next week, but he had a liver transplant and uh, still battling some complications. So if I show up with the sniffles, he will say, Andy, leave. So I'm just trying to be responsible. That's why I'm in a mask this morning. Before I jump into the message, I want to talk to you about Christmas cheer. You guys know Operation Give Back. You guys were awesome in helping us rally and provide uh, not just coats, gently used and new coats. We had over five large black garbage bags full of coats that you guys donated and Christmas gifts. And almost 100 gifts you guys provided just to local families. Most of those families are within a three-mile radius of where our church is. So it's really impactful and passionate for me because our mission is really, there's 144,000 people within a five-mile radius of where we're sitting right now, and there's no county in the U.S. that reaches half of those people. So there's at least, minimally, over 70,000 people that do not know who Jesus is. So this is just another extension to show our, you know, be the hands and feet of Jesus. And Operation Give Back is a faith-based community, and they do far more than just provide school supplies, which you guys have helped with, coats and Christmas gifts. They also have a food pantry that helps serve hundreds of families each and every week. And they do mentoring with kids and mentoring for young adults. So we're really excited about our continued connection and partnership with Operation Give Back. They're going to be here on the 18th. Uh, the director will be to kind of talk about their passion and what their ministry is all about. I'm really excited about that. But here's the thing I'd love to do. I would love to bless them with some Christmas cheer. And what that looks like is we would love to raise $5,000 before they get here on the 18th. And here's the best part. Our generosity of our board, our acting board, our PAC, has put up the first $2,500. They said, well, they'll do that as a match. So if we can raise $2,500 between now and December 17th, we will present them with a check, one of those real big corny checks. You know what I'm talking about? That would be a lot of fun. We haven't done that since like our first year when we raised uh, over $14,000 for back-to-back. But we'll present them with that check, and then we'll give them a real one, because that one won't work, uh, for $5,000. So would you start praying now what, you would, what God might be prompting you to give above and beyond your normal tithes and offerings so that we can close that $2,500 gap? If you have more questions, you can see me afterwards. Certainly we'll send you more information throughout the weeks. Is there a, yeah, there's a slide up there on how you can give. If you go online, you can pick the drop-down that says Christmas cheer, put the Christmas cheer in the memo, and drop it in the offering when it goes by a little bit later. So thank you in advance for your generosity. You guys are always awesome. I can't wait to celebrate that in a few weeks with her. They have no idea we're doing this, so that'll be a lot of fun. Well, Jana mentioned we are headed into the last series of the year, and if you're like me, I cannot believe it's already December, but we're launching this series in one of the most misunderstood books of the entire Bible, the book of Revelation. And let me spend a moment just talking about the writing style of this specific book. The Apostle Paul, who's believed to have written this book, wrote the Gospel of John and the uh, three letters of John that we've talked a little bit about during our reading plan. He's the writer of this same book of Revelation. And his initial audience was the seven local churches in Southwest Asia Minor. Now, some of these churches were experiencing persecution. We've talked a lot about that, probably under the Roman Emperor uh, Domitian. Others had doctrinal and practical problems in their churches. But 
behind all these problems was the backdrop of this, these, uh, this was spiritual warfare that was going on in all these churches. And the book of Revelation really provides us with almost a complete overview of theology. And there's so much in this book about Jesus. There's a lot about mankind and sin, the people of God, which means both the church and Israel, holy angels, Satan, demons. I mean, there's some crazy stuff in this book when you read it. There's also this material on God's power and the idea of the Trinity, plus aspects of the work of the Holy Spirit and the nature of Scripture, all in this book of Revelation. Now, the term revelation means to expose in full view what was formerly hidden, veiled, or secret. The majority of uh, Revelations alleges to be a series of visions disclosing unseen realities and future events. As a pastor, I'll be honest, this isn't the easiest book to teach from. As a matter of fact, a lot of teachers or pastors won't touch this because there's so much debate on what this book is. But whenever you take a vision from anybody, but specifically as it relates to John, an attempt to understand not only what was revealed to him, but then try to explain what was meant for us now, it's actually pretty difficult. What my hope is, is to present the book of Revelation through the lens of what most theologians believe, and then ask some questions on how that might impact us today. Today we're going to look at the seven letters that were written to these seven local churches and see what was going on behind the scenes to each church to give, bring some light to each one of these letters. Then we're going to ask ourselves some questions on how that might impact our lives here and now. But before we jump in to all of that, let's pray. God, just come right now by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, would you just help us to understand to the best of our ability what you meant when you spoke to John. God, challenge us, change us, make us more into be who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Thank you for that. My name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't introduced myself, if this is your first time here, watching us online or in person, thanks for joining us. We are certainly glad you are here. Today, we're heading to the book of Revelation. If you're following along the Disciples' Bibles, which is page 2003, if you don't have one, again, grab one. You can grab one now. You're not going to distract me. They're absolutely free. And if you're watching online, baccbible.com, fill out that information. I will get one in your hands. Jana mentioned this memory verse card in your, on your seats. And again, how this works is today I will teach out of something you will read later in the week. So I encourage you to follow along in the reading plan. Now, the book of Revelation, we have John on this wild ride, really. He's, he's pointing us to how God makes all things new, which is why we call the series what it is. So to help us better understand the book of Revelation, especially as it relates to these seven letters, we're going to talk about watch from our friends from Bible Project as they introduce the story. The book of the Revelation of Jesus. The author of this book, which is not called Revelations, by the way, is named at the beginning. It was written by John, which could refer to the beloved disciple who wrote the gospel and the letters of John, or it could be a different John, a messianic Jewish prophet who traveled about and taught in the early church. Whichever John it was, he makes clear in the opening paragraph what kind of book he has written. He calls it, first of all, a revelation or apocalypse. The Greek word is apokalupsis, and it refers to a type of literature very familiar to John's readers from the Hebrew scriptures and from other popular Jewish texts. 
Apocalypse has recounted a prophet's symbolic dreams and visions that revealed God's heavenly perspective on history and current events so that the present could be viewed in light of history's final outcome. And John says this apocalypse is a prophecy, which means it's a word from God spoken through a prophet to God's people, usually to warn or comfort them in a time of crisis. By calling this book a prophecy, John's saying that it stands in the tradition of the biblical prophets and is bringing their message to a climax. And this apocalyptic prophecy was sent to real people that John knew. The book opens and closes as a circular letter that was sent to seven churches in the ancient Roman province of Asia. Now, seven is a meaningful number for John. It's a symbol of completeness based on the seven-day Sabbath cycle in the Old Testament, and John has woven sevens into every single part of this book. Now, with this opening, John has given us clear guidance about how he wants us to understand this book. Jewish apocalypse is communicated through symbolic imagery and numbers. It is not a secret predictive code about the timing of the end of the world. Rather, John is constantly using these symbols that are drawn from the Old Testament, and he expects his readers to go discover what the symbols mean by looking up the text he's alluding to. Also, the fact that it's a letter means that John is actually addressing the situation of these first century churches. And so while this book has much to say to Christians of later generations, the book's meaning must first be anchored in the historical context of John's time, place, and audience. Which brings us into the book's first section, Jesus' message to the seven churches. John was exiled on the island of Patmos, and he saw a vision of the risen Jesus exalted as king of the world. And he was standing among seven burning lights. And John's told this is a symbol of the seven churches in Asia Minor that's been adapted from the book of the prophet Zechariah. And Jesus starts addressing the specific problems that face each church. Some were apathetic due to wealth and affluence. Others were morally compromised. Their people were still eating ritual meals and sleeping around in pagan temples. But others among the churches remained faithful to Jesus, and they were suffering harassment and even violent persecution. And Jesus warns that things are going to get worse. A tribulation is upon the churches that will force them to choose between compromise or faithfulness. By John's day, the murder of Christians by the Roman Emperor Nero was passed, and the persecution of Christians by Emperor Domitian was likely underway. And so the temptation was to deny Jesus, either to avoid persecution or simply to join the spirit of the Roman age. And Jesus calls them to faithfulness so that they can overcome or literally conquer. And Jesus promises a reward for everyone in these churches who does conquer. Each reward is drawn directly from the book's final vision about the marriage of heaven and earth. And so this opening section, it sets up the main plot tension that will drive the storyline in this book. Will Jesus' people endure? Will they inherit the new world that God has in store? And why is faithfulness to Jesus described as conquering? The rest of the book is John's answer. You can watch the rest of that, of course, on their app or go to their YouTube channel. There's two videos that relate uh, to just the book of Revelation. These are great videos. I encourage you to always go and watch those before you read any book of the Bible. But as a reminder, these seven letters we're going to talk about this morning were written to address the churches at that time, what was going on there. But there's something to be learned even now. There's still things that we can ask ourselves questions about and go, how does this impact us today? They mentioned that John was given direction from Jesus to write down what he was seeing and hearing from him. So let's pick up the story. They've referenced it, but let's read it for ourselves. John says, Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me when I turned and saw the seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was the one like the Son of Man. Now this is a reference to Jesus himself. 
said he was dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. This kind of signified that he was a high priest and could forgive sins. And it says, the hair on his head was white as wool, white as snow. This revealed wisdom and divine nature of who Jesus was. And it says his eyes were like a fiery flame. This was like judgment, the coming judgment that was coming. His feet were fine bronze as it fired in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of cascading waters. These, both of these images really indicate the power of Jesus. He had seven stars, which they mentioned indicated the angels of each church. In his right hand, a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth. This type of sword was invented by the Romans, and it represented this idea of invincible might. And his face was shining like the sun of, at full strength. When I saw him, John said, I fell, at, I, fell at his, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death uh, and Hades. This Jesus alone is the one they're saying decides who goes to heaven and who doesn't. It says, therefore, since all that is true, write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches themselves. And then it goes right in to the first letter of the church, to the first church. This is the first letter. It says, write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is, again, Jesus speaking to John. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardship for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, he says. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the work you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of Nicolaitans. Which, is also, which I also hate. Let alone who has ears, let anyone who has ears listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So, to better understand what Jesus is saying here, we have to understand the background of Ephesus and what's going on there. Ephesus, in, in this letter, is, referring, is being referred to as the forgetful church. He said, but I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. And then in verse 5 it said, remember how far you have fallen. They're the forgetful church. They were performing the duties of following Jesus, but without the love they once had for Jesus. They were replacing their faith and love with knowledge and wisdom. They knew a lot, but that didn't translate to how they were practically loving others. This was a community that prided themselves on knowledge. They had a a library that was well-known. They had over 12,000 books. This was a community that uh, had prevalent idolatry going on in their city and their church. They had temple after temple of all kinds of different gods that they worshipped. You could go and worship any god that you chose. It was a tourist attraction. 
because people would come from all over to visit these specific temples to worship their specific God. In Ephesus at this time, they had a well-known trash heap, and the people would leave their unwanted babies there. So just try to picture this. Whether it was because this baby was, it had a, uh, a deformation, or maybe it was a, a girl and they wanted a boy, whatever the reason was, if they didn't want the baby, they would take it to this trash heap and literally leave it there to die. Now the followers of Jesus, what they would do, they were taking these babies and they were raising them as their own. But the compassion that they once had that was so prevalent and is, was now dwindling. That's what Jesus is, is talking about. They had drifted and they had forgotten their first love, which was God and the love of others. Jesus was giving them this letter to course correct them and remind them of that first love. So the questions for us in this letter are these. These are in your insert if you grabbed a program. Where have you replaced faith and love with knowledge and wisdom? Where have we done this? Where is it that we aren't expressing our love of God and others and instead explaining away what God wants us individually to do? The second letter was the church in Smyrna. This is what it says. Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. It says, I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know that slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison and test you, and, I, and you will experience affliction for ten days. Be faithful, he said, to the point of death, and I will give you a crown of life. Then he says this, he ends a lot of these letters this way. Listen, anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the scriptures say to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. This was known as the suffering church. Smyrna was modern day Izmir. It's the third largest city in Turkey and it's Turkey's second largest port. Smyrna's significance was its location and its influence and allegiance to Rome. It was a melting pot for different religions because of its easy access. It had a rich history of poets and authors. As a matter of fact, the author or poet Homer was born in Smyrna. Not Homer Simpson, by the way, but Homer of the Odyssey and the Iliad. This was also one of the first cities to build a statue to the emperor Caesar. And this is important. In their marketplace, they had engraved inscriptions in marble and granite columns to brag about their accomplishments for the wealthy and politicians or religious leaders and to celebrate these impressive buildings. They had culture for recognizing and rewarding people by giving them crowns. These crowns signified these accomplishments or prestige from the person that was giving the crown. The average citizen had no expectation to ever receive one of these crowns. They were reserved for these elite athletes or war heroes. There was such an importance on emperor worship that once a year, citizens had to burn incense at the altar, this altar that was created for Caesar, and then they would receive their yearly citizen's certificate. If you refuse to obey this or burn incense or, or worship this statue of Caesar, you could be put to death or at best be put into, pres- put into prison. And Jesus is reminding them in the letter to stay strong in their faith, not compromise and worship this statue of Caesar. 
And then he reminds them of something they never considered receiving, a crown. He said, don't be afraid for about what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. But he said, be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you a crown of life. So the questions for us is, we can ask ourselves are, what or where are we suffering for Jesus? And what are we doing to avoid some of the suffering that Jesus might want us to endure, to build our character, and to be faithful for the crown of life? Then we come to the third letter, Pergamum. This is what it says, Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has a sharp, double-edged sword. Remember, we talked about that earlier. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you, he says. You have some there who hold on to the teaching of Balaam and Balak who, to place a stumbling block in block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. We talked about sacrificial meats and all that kind of stuff several months ago. I'll provide more context in a moment. In the same way, you have these who hold on to the teaching of Nicolaitans. So repent, he says, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has ears to listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, to the ones who conquers. I will give some of them hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on that stone a new name inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. There's so much going on here. We'll spend just a little bit of time talking about a few things. But Pergamum was known as the compromising church. Pergamum was known for its beauty. It was an important city at the time of this writing because of its political and religious uh, you know, spectrum. You could worship about any god you could ever think of in many of their temples as well. Several of their gods were known as Lord and Savior. They too had a temple for Caesar that required you to burn incense and to publicly declare Caesar was Lord. If you refused, you could lose your business, your home, and of course, even your life. This was the backdrop of this specific city, Pergamum. This, this church, this is why Jesus says, write to the angel of the church of Pergamum, thus says the one who has a sharp double-edged sword, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who is put to death among you where Satan lives. This double-edged sword, remember, was the image they would know and understand that this meant an invincible might, and Jesus is saying, I have that invincible might to remind them that there is only one Lord and Savior. There's only one true king, and Jesus is saying, that's me. And the questions for this letter for us are, where are we living our lives under the belief that something or someone has power that belongs to Jesus? Where are we giving people or something more power in our lives than it should have? Then we come to the tolerant church. It says, write to the angel and Tyariah. It says, thus says, this thus says the God, the one who, whose eyes are like a fiery flame, remember we talked about that, whose feet are like fine bronze. I know your works, your love, faithfulness, servants, and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first. 
But then he comes to this point. But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman of Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction unless they repent of her works. I will strike her children dead then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines the minds and the hearts, and I will give each of you according to your works. I say to the rest of you in in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I'm not putting any other burdens on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and the one who keeps my works to the end I will give him authority over nations, and he will rule with them like with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like like pottery. Just as I have received this from my father, I will also give him the morning star. Let anyone who has ears to listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. This was a blue-collar kind of a town. They were known for working hard and playing hard. They had a Greek god associated with each professional trade. And they were expected to pray to the god of their profession or their, their, their trade. One particular god they worshipped was Apollo, who they believed was the son of the Greek god Zeus. So they referred to Apollo as the son of God because of this. If the followers of Jesus didn't worship Apollo or their, their Greek god associated to their profession or trade, then they had a... They had this choice to make. They either had to worship this God or deny their faith. And deny their faith or they had to say that I have allegiance to Jesus and then they could receive this idea of, hey, you could lose your profession, you could lose your home, you could lose your family, you could lose your life. This is why Jesus opens the letter the way he does. When he says, thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame. Remember judgment. Those whose feet are like bronze. I know your works, your love, faithfulness, servants, and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than your first. He was making it clear that he was the son of God. That their works for the kingdom is what mattered, not their professional trade. Jesus reaffirms this truth at the end of the letter when he says, Just as I have received this from my father. Not Zeus but the Father in heaven, the creator of everything. So our questions are, where are we being tolerant when we shouldn't? Where are we putting up with things that are contrary to our faith in Jesus? This brings us to church number five, Sardis. This was known as the slumbering church. Write to the angel of the church of Sardis. Thus says the one who has seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die, for I have not found your works complete before me. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief, and you will have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, And will walk with me in white because they are worthy. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes. And I will never ease his name 
I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before the angels. Let anyone who has ears to listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, Sardis was known for its affluence and a creative culture. It was a large city of around 100,000 people and believed to be a popular city because of this gold rush they had, which made this a very wealthy city. It was one of, if not the first city, to coin or to mint gold and silver to be used as currency. There was this specific coin that they used that had an image of their ruler, Domitian, on it. And on the back of that coin, it had an image of him holding the seven stars, symbolizing, to them at least, that he was in charge of the empire and the city. It's this power that Jesus is specifically addressing in this letter when he said, Write to the angel of the church in Sardis, thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, reminding them that he was the one in charge. Again, those seven stars represented the angels, the seven angels of the seven churches. The other interesting thing about this place, or this specific city, is its location. It was surrounded by almost unclimbable mountains, which acted like a fortified city or walls or protection around this city. So much so that they didn't believe that they could have any outside attackers. But there are two known occasions where it was overrun by really well-trained climbing armies. So their struggle was being alert to the actual dangers that were around them. There were dangers that existed, but because of this protection of these unclimbable mountains and their perception, they didn't think they could be attacked or defeated. And Jesus reminds them to be alert when he said, Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die, for I have not found your works complete before my God. And he says, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. You won't know the hour. Our questions are, where are we overconfident? What are our unclimbable mountains around our life? This is a great reminder to us that God, or that the enemy, the enemy will often use our greatest strength, the things we're most talented in or gifted in, the things that we know, and turn it into a weakness. Because we often just rely on our own strengths, our own talents, and not even invite God into those things. We'll say things, or we won't say these out loud, but we'll think things like, I got this one, God. I'll need you on the next one. And that's where the enemy can sneak in and use our strength against us. Church number six is the enduring church, Philadelphia. This is what it says, right to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Thus says the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one closes, and who closes and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close Because you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Note this, he says, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not but are lying. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and they will know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to endure. I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write him on the name of my God and my name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem, which which comes down out of heaven from my name and my new name. 
Let anyone who has ears to listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, Philadelphia was founded about 150 years before the time of Jesus. It was a Greek culture, and the common phrase to hear would be Caesar's king or Caesar's lord. It would be like us saying, God bless America. The leading god they worshipped was Dionysus, the god of fertility, who later became known as the god of, of wine and pleasure. The area was known for tremendous earthquakes, At one point, it had such devastation for a 20-year span of these earthquakes, Rome withdrew collecting taxes so that they could rebuild their city. They worshipped many gods, much like some of these other churches we talked about. This is the backdrop that Jesus reminds them of who he is. He says, because you have kept my command to endure all the earthquakes, everything they've had to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come in the whole world and those who live on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. Testing is about, this idea of testing is about the tribulation when the believers of Jesus will be spared, much like survivors are spared in an earthquake. Those spared will be given a pillar. This signified permanence. It signified stability and protection and safety. They would have seen this like, ah, we're safe from the earthquakes. They had a promised future in this dwelling safety of of God and his kingdom. They never had to fear earthquakes again. In the meantime, they had to endure endure their, their sufferings and withstand the cultural pressures to participate in these ungodly festivals and parties. For us, the questions are, Where or what in our own lives are the things we participate in that aren't God-honoring? What areas of life are we facing that we need to endure until Christ returns? Where do we need to remind ourselves that Jesus is king and protector regardless of our circumstances? And that brings us to the last and maybe the most well-known, if you know anything about the seven churches, Laodicea. It says, write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Thus says the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the originator and the God and God's creator. I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit. Some translations say spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat with my father on his throne. Let anyone who is here is to listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Laodicea was an extremely wealthy city. But even in their wealth, they didn't have direct access to fresh water. The neighboring city to the north was known for its hot springs and hot water. The neighboring city to the south was known for its cold water. 
This hot water springs was a great tourist de destination. The cold water springs was known for its good drinking water. So Laodicea didn't have its own fresh water. It had to build aqueducts, which were like piping system, to bring in water from nearby springs. And although the water was cold from the spring they were, they were piping it from, by the time it made it to their city, it was lukewarm. This is why Jesus says, I know your works, that you're neither hot or cold. I wish that you were one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit or spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I become wealthy and need nothing. You didn't realize that you're wretched, you wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Because they're so wealthy, they rely on all of that wealth and their own ability to make money. As a matter of fact, the lukewarm water, which was high in mineral water, caused the sheep to grow purple coat. This purple coat was a rare sign of wealth. It, it, it was like a royalty, which people from around the world would come to purchase. Not only that, they were known for their medical breakthrough on the eye. They created an ointment that could cure or help many eye problems. People, again, from around the world would come to Laodicea with these all types of eye problems that they could be treated with. All of these things, the purple wool and this eye ointment, just added to their wealth. Jesus is saying, don't continue to be lukewarm. Don't continue to rely on your own strengths. He says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, the true riches of heaven. White clothes, not the purple wool, that you may be dressed in and, and your shameful nakedness not be exposed. An ointment, he's talking directly to what they rely on, to spread on your eyes so that you may really see who God is and who, what his kingdom is. Refined in the fire, he's saying be hot. Being on fire with your faith brings true riches. Dressed in white was a symbol of perfection, of no sin, which can only be attained by faith in Jesus. And then the ointment on the eye that the Holy Spirit then opens up our eyes to see who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus wants to do. So then we, it's true, we have sight. We're no longer blinded. So our, our questions is, where are we blinded? Where are we not seeing through the lens of God's kingdom, but instead our own strengths, or maybe we could say it this way, our own kingdom? All of these questions at the end of each one of these letters we can wrestle with. And I, I encourage you to wrestle with them. But maybe the better question is this. What letter would Jesus write to us? What would he say in it? What would he address specifically? Where would he try to get our attention and course correct each and every one of our lives? I mean, think about that for a moment. Now, not what letter would he write to America, not, not what letter would he write to Ohio or Hamilton County, what letter would he write to our church right here in Blue Ash? Because faith is a community sport. It is not an individual one. The Bible is a we book, not a me book. God is still in the business of wanting to get our attention. He still wants to course correct each and every one of our lives. I mean, what if we decided to be proactive and get back to our first love of Jesus and his people? What would that take? What would need to change in each and every one of us? What would we need to give up? 
what would we need to start doing? What would those words of Jesus say? How would they impact us? I encourage you during your quiet time this week to spend time asking that question. What would you say in the letter that you would send to our church, and how would that impact me as a follower of you, Jesus, and how then I express my love to others? Grab your Connect cards that Jana talked about when you walked in. If you've not filled this out, go ahead and fill out what you're comfortable with, minimally your name, and write down a next step. I'm going to offer you a few next steps. You may have one of your own. Write it down, and we'll follow up with you where it's appropriate. The first one is this. Maybe today's the day you accept Christ for the first time. We'll be doing baptisms on our 10-year anniversary, which is hard to believe, first Sunday in February. So if you've recently made that decision, you want to get baptized, you can go ahead and write that down. We'll follow up with you. But maybe today's you're like, you know what? I've been living my own life. I've been my, quote, own church. I've been living my own kingdom. I'm making my own decisions. Like, it's not got me to the place I want because you can't get there on your own. The void you have in your life can only be filled by Jesus. He is the true provider. He is the true change agent. Maybe today as you make that choice, you can just notate that on your Connect card and drop that in the offering when it goes by. The second one is this, our second next step. What letter would Jesus write to Blue Ash Community Church? And then how can we course correct our lives to align with Jesus and his people? What would he address? What would he say? What would it cause us to do differently? What would we have to repent from? How would that impact our day-to-day? Not just today, but every day. How would God's Spirit challenge us and change us? Where would we have to ask for more of His help? Where would we have to turn our not just our weaknesses over to God, but also our strengths? And God, I need you here just as much as I need you in the weaknesses. The third is receive prayer. We have two prayer teams to either side of me. We'll have our prayer wall in the back. You write down your prayer requests on that tag. If you want everybody to pray for it, make sure everybody sees it. Just want the prayer teams and the staff, make sure it's facing the wall. You can write your prayer requests on this connect card or email us at prayer at blueashcc.com. But I truly want to encourage you, get up and receive prayer in person. I think it's a powerful way to hear from God, but it's also a posture that when we cross that line of fear, get up out of our seats, take those few steps over there. I think it's God honoring. I think God will meet us there. Not that he's not going to meet us in the written prayers or the emailed prayers, but I think there's something powerful that happens when we do it in person. And then, of course, our memory verse for this series. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down for these are the words trustworthy and true. All things new. That's you and me. That's everything. He wants to make you a new creation in him. We're going to receive our offering. If you want to drop your offering and connect cards in there, pull out your communion elements that you would receive when you walked in. And if you didn't get them, you can certainly get up and grab them at the table when you walked in. We do this as a reminder of who Jesus is and what Jesus did, that he walked to the cross, he gave up his life. That's what this wafer represents. It's his body that we're putting in us. The reminder that Jesus is in us, that his body was broken for you and for me, and that his blood was shed, which this juice represents. We're saying thanks, God. 
we come to the altar of Jesus, we're saying, God, I'm with you. Whatever you say, I want to do. And God, I need your help to be obedient to that. God, I repent from my way and I say yes to your way. Let me pray. God, just thanks. Thanks for these seven letters and this, this book that is sometimes really difficult to engage in. But God, we know when we come authentically to your word, even if we don't intellectually understand one single word of it, we know our spirit, because it's your spirit in us, connects with you, and you change us. God, sometimes it makes no sense that we can read something that is thousands of years old, miss the whole cultural background, and yet you still use it to change us, to challenge us, to be more like you. And so, God, that's what we ask. During these coming weeks, when we go to a book, when we read about a vision from a man, and we'll miss more than we get, God, the the key point is you. We want to get as much of you as we can. So come, meet us right now with all that you have. And change us to be all that you are. In Jesus' name, amen. You're free to sit or stand and get prayer.